It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we finished the trial of Jesus and the trial concluded with Pontius Pilate sentencing Jesus to death by crucifixion, which brings us to one of the most important parts of any of the Gospels, and that's the section that we have on the crucifixion of Jesus. And something very interesting about this section that John here records for us is he doesn't really focus on a lot of the details of what Jesus physically endured and and went through as he went through this crucifixion. Instead, his focus is on something else. There's one main thing that John brings up over and over and over again through this section on the crucifixion of Jesus, and that is the many Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled or were fulfilled in the event surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. So instead of focusing all that Jesus went through physically on the cross, John decided to focus on what Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament prophecies through his crucifixion. Now when I say prophecy, I'm speaking of predicting the future by divine revelation. Basically, it's to tell what will happen in the future before it ever does. You see, the Old Testament is full of prophecy, full of foretelling of future events before they take place. And many of those prophecies are foretold about the Son of God, about the Messiah, prophecies about where he would be born, how he would live, and how he would die. And it's the Old Testament prophecies that are connected with the death of the Messiah, the death of the Son of God that John really emphasizes, highlights, focuses in on for us in this section that he has on Jesus' crucifixion. Now, there are two main reasons why these prophecies that Jesus fulfills in the crucifixion are important. First, they're important because they deepen the love displayed by God on the cross. You see, these prophecies reveal that that Jesus' death on the cross was a specific plan of God, thousands of years before it ever happened. And so Jesus' death on the cross, it's connected with all these things that God had specifically foretold in the Old Testament, this plan of His to save mankind. And the reason it's important to understand is because planned love is deeper than spontaneous love. For example, if a couple were dating, they're sitting on the couch watching Netflix, and all of a sudden this guy decides, you know what, I'm just going to be spontaneous. I'm going to pop the question right here. I'm going to ask this girl to marry him. He doesn't have a ring. He hasn't thought it through. He doesn't really know what to say, and he just kind of says, you know, will you marry me? Now, you know, The fact that he asked this girl to marry him shows love, but how much deeper would the love be if he would have planned a very special way to propose? You know, what if instead of just sitting on the couch and spontaneously doing that, he decided, you know what, I'm going to take her to her favorite restaurant. And then after that, we're going to go out and and we're going to watch her uh, favorite musical and then we're going to take a romantic boat ride, and, and I'm going to work on you know, writing her a poem, and then I'm going to read that poem to her, and then I'm going to take her to a very special spot, a spot down at the beach. It's the spot where I first said I love her, and I'm going to bring a shovel, and we're going to dig up a little treasure box that I had buried earlier that day, and as she's buried, un, uh, digging up that treasure box, I'm going to get down on one knee, and as she opens it, there's going to be a ring in there, and then I'm going to propose to her. Now, both proposals would have shown love, but the one that had all the planning 
and all the thought that went into it would have shown a deeper level of love and also it would have been received in a deeper way by the girl being proposed to. You see, loving actions and words mean so much more when they're planned and when they're thought through. And that's what these prophecies about Jesus' death revealed to us, that God planned this. He thought this through. And as we look at this great demonstration of love that the cross portrays for us, we need to recognize how deep that love is. It was planned by God for us. So the first reason prophecies are important is because it deepens the love displayed by God on the cross. And the second reason prophecies are important is because they're a powerful evidence of Jesus' deity and of the fact that the Bible is the authoritative, trustworthy, inspired Word of God. Something important to understand is that 25% of the Bible is prophetic. It predicts the future. The Bible contains over 2,500 prophecies. And the thing that you need to understand is 2,100 of those have already been fulfilled to the letter exactly as the Bible foretold they would be. Now, if the Bible predicted the future once or twice, people might say, well, yeah, that's coincidental. But when you predict the future accurately 2,100 times, that's no longer a coincidence. That's an impossibility. The only way that could happen is if God who knows the future was the one who inspired the word of God. And that's exactly what happened. So fulfilled prophecy is the powerful evidence that God was the one who inspired the Bible, was the one who was the authority behind the Bible. But it's also a powerful evidence that Jesus is the Messiah that Jesus is the Son of God that the Old Testament prophesied would come. You see, there are 315 different prophecies speaking about the coming Messiah, speaking about how he would be born, how he would live, how he would die. Now, there's a book called Science Speaks, which focuses on the scientific proof of the accuracy of prophecy in the Bible. It was written by a man named Peter Stoner, who was chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Westmont College. And this book takes the statistical probability of one man fulfilling just eight of these Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And the results of what this gentleman found are quite astounding. Mr. Stoner calculated the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies would be one in ten to the 17th power. So that is one with 17 zeros behind it, which is 100 quadrillion. You have a trillion, and then you have quadrillion. And this is 100 quadrillion. That's a huge number. Now, to try to give you a little perspective on how impossible the odds of 1 in 10 to the 17th power are, the odds of winning the Texas Mega Million jackpot is 1 in 176 million. Now, that's horrible odds. One in 176 million, if you're playing the lottery, then you're being really foolish because the odds of you winning are are pretty bad. But one in 10 to the 17th power is such a huge number that we kind of really don't even comprehend how bad those odds are. And so Peter Stoner, he, he gives an example to try to get us to understand the magnitude of that number and why that odd is so impossible. Mr. Stoner said, if you took the state of Texas and filled it two feet deep with silver dollars, and you marked one of those silver dollars with an X, and you took one person and you blindfolded them and you told them, you can walk as far as you want in the state of Texas, but at some point in time, you're going to have to stop. And when you stop, you have to reach down and you have to pick up a silver dollar. The odds of the very first time that that person walking the state of Texas with feet full of silver dollars to pick up the one silver dollar with the red X on it would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So the statistical odds of Jesus just filling eight Old Testament prophecies is pretty much impossible. But understand, Jesus didn't just fill eight He fulfilled 315, which is definitely a statistical miracle. So when we look at the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his crucifixion, understand that's a huge evidence for the fact that Jesus is God, for the fact that you can trust the Bible. This is one of those things as you might talk with people who are searching, not really sure. Hey, can I trust the Bible? Can I believe in who Jesus was? You know, fulfilled prophecy is a great evidence that you can bring and share with them. 
Now remember, the main reason that John wrote this gospel is to help people believe that Jesus is God. And so as the other gospel writers, they kind of focus on something a little different on the crucifixion. And John says, you know what, when I write about this, my focus is going to be on fulfilled prophecy. Why? Because that proves that Jesus is God. I want to show over and over again that the Old Testament that prophesied that the Son of God would come, that Jesus fulfilled those things in his death so that they could see that Jesus is God. And more importantly, John's goal wasn't just that you would know that Jesus was God, but that it would lead you to put your trust in him. And so as we look at this, we're going to see nine different fulfilled prophecies that John brings out to us in the crucifixion of Jesus. Nine different prophecies that were fulfilled in the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. And I want to challenge you first that there's overwhelming proof that Jesus is God and the Bible is trustworthy, but also encourage you that the greatest love ever demonstrated was demonstrated on the cross. And it was a deep love because it wasn't just spontaneous. It was planned by God because of his deep love for you and for me. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Pilate has just got done sentencing Jesus to death. He's now delivering him to be crucified. And we're going to start to see some things that happen that fulfill Old Testament prophecy. John 19, starting in verse 16, says this. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. So in these three verses, John actually is sharing with us five different things that happen around the crucifixion of Jesus and the events leading up to him going to the cross that fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And so right after Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, we're told, then they took Jesus and led him away. And the first prophecy that we see fulfilled here comes from these three words, led him away. You see, something important to understand is according to historians, crucifixion was so terrifying that those who were sentenced to crucifixion and were now about to be crucified, they would have to walk from where they were sentenced to where they would be actually nailed to a cross. And they would have to carry this cross beam as they did it. And that was not something that people wanted. They did not want to get to that destination. And so, you know, they would do all they could to stop that from happening. They'd be kicking, they'd be screaming, they'd be holding on to things. You know, they were desperate to not get to that place where they were going to be tortured in such a horrible way. And so often what took place is that the soldiers had to drive these people to the place of their execution and they would use spears they would use whips they would get behind them and literally have to drive them and some people were just so you know they didn't care they'd just be beaten and whipped they were not going to go there so they would tie them and they would drag them to the destination and I would imagine if you were in that situation if I was in that situation I would not want to make it easy for them to get me to the place where I'm going to be tortured in such a horrible way and I could see myself trying to fight and resist all I could and that was just the normal way that things took place when that situation of the person walking from where they were convicted to where they would be executed. And so it was common for them to be driven to that place. But notice we're told that they led Jesus away to the place he would be crucified. So they weren't behind Jesus, driving him with whips and with spears. They were in front of him, leading him to the cross. That means that Jesus went willingly. Without someone trying to force it upon him, he willingly went to his death. No panic, no struggle. They led and Jesus followed. And the reason this is so important to note is because it fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. It tells us this. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Cattle, they are driven to their death. Lambs, they're led. They're kind of dumb. They just follow. They trust. They believe. And all of a sudden, they're led to their death. And Isaiah is prophesying hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born that the Messiah, the Son of God, he would be led to his death like a lamb is led to the slaughter. 
that he'd be willingly following his executioners to the place that they would kill him. And that's exactly what we see here happening in John 19, verse 16. By willingly following the soldiers to his death, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah 53, 7. And by willingly following the soldiers, it's another thing that we see that John continues to bring up. Jesus chose to do this. He wasn't forced to do this. He was in control, and he willingly gave his life for you and for me. Now, in verse 17, we see a second prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. So Jesus had to walk from the praetorium where Pilate sentenced him to death all the way to this place called the place of the skull where he would be crucified on a cross. Now this place was known as the place of the skull or in Hebrew it was called Golgotha meaning the skull because part of the place looked like a skull. This is a picture I took when I was in Israel, the place that most people believed is where Jesus was crucified. And as you can see from the uh, spot here that I circled, it it looks like a skull. You have the the eye sockets, you have the nose, and um, you know, but the most important part of what John reveals here is he tells us, and he bearing his cross went out to this place of the skull. So as Jesus walked from the Praetorium, to the place of the skull, notice what he had to do. He had to bear his cross. He had to carry that on himself. Now, historians tell us, and it kind of goes against a lot of the movies that we see, but you know, a full cross was way too heavy for an individual, especially one who has been beaten so severely, to carry. And so typically, they would just have you carry the cross beam across your shoulders to the place that you would be crucified. And the other you know, up and down piece would already have been in the ground, and they would raise you up, and they would nail you to it. But so Jesus is carrying this cross beam from the praetorium to the place of the skull, And I want you to note here that in doing so, he fulfills a wonderful Old Testament prophecy that is a a prophecy that's fulfilling a, a type or picture of what Jesus would go through. Back in Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. And he told him to do it on Mount Moriah. Now, interestingly enough, Mount Moriah is the exact same mountain that Jesus was crucified on. And we're told in Genesis 22, verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. So Abraham and Isaac are walking to the place where Isaac's going to be sacrificed. And notice what Isaac is carrying. We're told that Abraham places the wood of the offering on Isaac. And so Isaac, as he's walking to the place of his death, his sacrifice, he's carrying this wood upon himself. Now Isaac in the Bible is a picture of Jesus. And this is a powerful picture because Isaac is carrying the wood that he'd be sacrificed on, and he's doing it in obedience to his father, just like Jesus was carrying the wood of the cross that he would be sacrificed on, and he did it in obedience to his heavenly father. Now Isaac asked his father, look the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for this burnt offering? And Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And God did provide himself the lamb. Jesus, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. All that Abraham did with Isaac, God rescues and has an angel and Isaac doesn't get sacrificed, but Jesus does. And it was a picture of what Jesus would do, bearing his cross, going to his own death. So the fact that Jesus does this fulfills this prophecy in Genesis 22. Now, there's another fulfilled prophecy in verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull. 
Now, this verse is telling us that Jesus went out, speaking of the fact that he went outside of the city gates. That's where the place was. The place of the skull was outside of the city. And this is why in verse 20, we're told that Jesus was crucified near the city, not in the city. He goes outside of it. Now, the reason this is significant, he's like, well, who cares where he was? Well, it fulfills several Old Testament prophecies. Exodus 29, 14 tells us, But the flesh of the bull with its skin and its offal shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Later on in Leviticus chapter 4, Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, speaking of the same thing, you must take that burnt offering and burn it outside, or that sin offering, of the camp. Now, as Israel stopped wandering the wilderness and they finally came to the promised land and they established themselves and they had city of Jerusalem, as the Day of Atonement came, they would do that. They would take the burnt sin offering outside of the city just like they were told to do. And God made this very clear that the sin offering was to be made outside the camp, outside the city. Why? Because he knew one day the ultimate sin offering in Jesus Christ on the cross was going to be made outside of the city as well. Hebrews 13, and the author of that, who takes a lot of the Old Testament, reveals what it means in Christ, tells us this in verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gates. So Hebrews is clearly connecting this Old Testament sin offering that was offered outside the gates, outside the camp, outside the city with Jesus as well as Jesus was offered and crucified outside of the city. So the fact that Jesus was crucified outside of the city, fulfills this prophecy in Exodus 29, 14, Leviticus chapter 4 and 16. Now in verse 18, we have two more prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. We're told this in verse 18. Where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Well, now John is telling us, you know, we we know we've seen a lot of things that Jesus was going to be crucified, but now we actually see it. He has been crucified. And once again, this is something that the Old Testament prophesied. And understand, you know, God's way of dealing with people in capital punishment was stoning, not crucifixion. So, you know, all the Jews reading things in the Old Testament and seeing, you know, how the the Messiah, the Son of God would die would would be kind of a foreign thing to them because it's like, well, wait a second, we don't kill people that way. We kill people by stoning them, and yet we're told two different places of how the Messiah, the Son of God, would die. And the first place is a a prophecy that's uh, based on a type or picture, just like Isaac Going to his death, carrying the wood on his shoulders is a a type or picture of Jesus. We see something in Numbers chapter 21. God sent a plague of snakes against the Israelites because they were complaining and disobedient and they had lack of faith in God. And the snakes start biting people and they start dying. And they finally come to this place of repentance. God, we were sorry that we've done this. Please stop this. And God says, all right, Moses, I want you to do something. I want you to build this bronze serpent, and I want you to put it on this pole. And anybody who's been bitten by the snake, if they'll come to that, and they'll look on that, and they'll put their faith that I will heal them, then they'll be healed. So if they come to this and trust that I can heal them, I'll do that. Now, Jesus, two different times in John's gospel, connects his death with what happens here in Numbers chapter 21. One of those places is John 3, 14 and 15. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 12, 32 and 33 says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. So Jesus clearly connects his death, his crucifixion of being lifted up. Remember, when they would stone people, they would cast them down, and then they would stone them. It was very opposite type of execution where the Romans, they lift you up on a cross, and Jesus saying, that's the kind of death I'm going to die. And I look back to what happened in Numbers 21. What Moses did was ultimately prophesying the death that I 
would die. So that's the first way that Jesus' death on the cross is prophesied. It's more of a, a picture, a type. But we also have one that's just very descriptive in Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 22. Uh, let me read just a little bit of that psalm, and you'll see some of the descriptions that are clearly connected to Jesus' crucifixion that says this in Psalm 22, verse 1, and verses 14 through 16. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Look at how this psalm starts with the exact words that Jesus speaks from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it goes on to give us a clear description of things that only a crucified person ultimately went through. They, they pierced my hands and, and my feet. Well, that's something that they did to a crucified person. All my bones are out of joint. If you've listened to any of my uh, old teachings on Good Friday, oftentimes I'll go through the medical side of what Jesus went through on the cross, and that's part of it. The bones are just hanging, and they go out of joints, and it's part of the, the pain and suffering that a crucified person would go through. It speaks about problems with the heart, lack of strength, thirst, all these things that a crucified person would have to endure. So when John tells us that Jesus was crucified, it's a fulfillment of prophecy from Numbers 21, but also from Psalm 22, that the Messiah, the Son of God, would die on a cross. But notice that John adds a few details to Jesus' crucifixion. He says this in verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. So John tells us that Jesus is crucified, but he's crucified in the middle of two others. Jesus is in the center, so his cross is in the middle, and then there's two crosses next to him and two men on each one of those crosses. Now, John doesn't give us any more information about those men, but Luke does. Luke tells us that these are two thieves, all right? So Jesus is in the middle, and next to him, crucified next to him, are two thieves, and this is important because it fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah 53, 12, which tells us this, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. Notice that Isaiah tells us, hey, that the Messiah, the Son of God, he would be numbered with the transgressor. Speaking of, he's going to be killed with those people who are transgressors, who are sinners. Well, that's exactly what happened. Jesus was crucified with transgressors, with these, right in the middle of two of them. And so once again, fulfilling another prophecy in doing so. And so in verses 16 through 18, we see just in those three verses, five prophecies that the events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion fulfilled. Well, now John's going to tell us what Pilate wrote concerning Jesus's crime and how the religious leaders respond to it in verses 19 through 22, which tells us this. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, one of the reasons that the Romans crucified people and did it in such a public and gruesome way was to deter crime. You know, they wanted people to see this suffering person and think, I'm never going to do that crime. But well, how would they know what crime they committed? Well, above the cross, they would have, you know, a, a sign that would say what they did. So maybe it would say thief or murderer or adulterer or whatever it was that they were convicted of. And so as you're walking by, you're thinking, I'm never stealing. I don't want to be that guy. And now with Jesus, they put a sign above his head. And the sign they put above his head is ultimately the first thing that the religious leaders accused Jesus of to Pilate, which is the fact that Jesus was the king of the Jews or claimed that he was the king of the Jews. And so Pilate, he decides, I'll put the sign up there. The sign's going to read, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the king of the Jews. And he writes it not only in Hebrew, which would have been the language of the Jews, he writes it in Greek and in Latin, so pretty much anybody who would be around there would be able to read what the sign said. Well, the religious leaders, they're not happy about this title. And the reason they're not happy about the title is because they don't believe Jesus is the king of the Jews. So they come to Pilate and they say, hey, hey, don't write the king of the Jews, right? He said he was the king of the Jews. You see, Pilate, well, we don't want you making people believe that this is our king. Just let them know he claimed it, but it wasn't true. That's why he's up there. You know, that was kind of their mindset. That was what they were hoping that Pilate would do. And up to now, Pilate's been pretty you know, generous to doing what they wanted. He crucifies Jesus, even though he knew he was innocent. But finally, Pilate gets a little bit of a backbone and just says, you know, what I've written, I've written. I'm not changing anything. Just get out of my face. And he doesn't do anything about it. Well, now John's going to share what the soldiers did after crucifying Jesus, which is another fulfillment of prophecy in verse 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. So here we're told these are four soldiers, more accurately would be executioners. Uh, that was kind of their role, their job. They did this all the time. And so they're the guys who are crucifying the ones who nailed Jesus to this cross. And something important to note, and you know, I understand why no movie does this, but the reality is people who were crucified were crucified naked. Uh, they were stripped down of everything. And so Jesus, as he's placed on that cross, all his clothes are stripped off of him. And now these Roman soldiers, part of, I guess, you know, what they get is, hey, anybody who has stuff, you guys who crucify him, you get to take it. And a typical Jew had four things that they wore, sandals, belt, head covering, and an outer cloak. And most likely Jesus had all of those things. So you got four soldiers and they divide that up. Maybe one gets a sandal, one gets the belt, one gets the head covering, one gets the outer cloak, and they can go and sell that. But we're also told that Jesus wore something else. It was a tunic but it's a tunic without seam, woven from top to bottom, all one piece. And now they realize, you know what, to rip this, this is valuable. And if we tear it, it becomes not valuable. So instead of dividing it among the four of us, how about we do this? Let's cast lots, let's gamble for it. Whoever wins gets to keep it. And, you know, they'll be the ones that will be blessed with the value of it. And so they do that. They cast lots and, you know, one of them gets to keep this tunic. Now, the reason this is an important detail that John shares with us is because it is another fulfilled prophecy, and John highlights that. He wants to make sure we understand it. That's why he specifically points it out. He says that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. Well, John, why are you giving us these details about them gambling over Jesus' clothes? What's the big deal? Well, I'm giving you this detail because I want you to know it's specifically fulfilled in Old Testament prophecy. And the Old Testament prophecy that John uh, is quoting is Psalm 28, 18, which says the same thing. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So hundreds of years before the Messiah, Jesus ever came, hundreds of years before this ever happened, it was prophesied this was going to take place. As he goes to his death, they are going to take his garments, divide it among themselves, and then they're going to cast lots and gamble for it. Now, these Roman soldiers have no clue about these prophecies. They have no clue what's going on. They're just doing their thing, but yet they are fulfilling the prophecy that God declared would happen with the Messiah, Jesus. Well, now John's going to share with us a powerful moment of love from Jesus as he's there suffering immensely, on the cross, notice what he does in verses 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So now we're at the cross, and as we've looked through the events leading up to this, we've seen that the disciples have dispersed. 
Peter has denied, Judas has betrayed, and there's only one disciple now who's come the whole way and is there at the cross, and that's John. John doesn't refer to himself by name at all in this gospel that he wrote. He just refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he's there at the cross, and there's also three women all named Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the sister of Jesus' mother, and then Mary Magdalene, who's the woman that Jesus cast out the demons of and who followed him ever since that time. And so here you have these women and John, and I want you to note what Jesus says to his mom and to John, which is very important. He says, woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, behold your mother. What Jesus is doing here is giving John the responsibility of taking care of his mother. And why is that significant? Why is that important? Well, guess what? In that Jewish culture, the oldest son had the responsibility of taking care of the parents. And this would be even more significant for Mary because Joseph's already dead. And so Mary now is a widow, and she has only one provider, and that is the oldest son, Jesus. He's the one who's now responsible for taking care of her needs. Well, Jesus recognizes, I'm about to die. I'm about to leave this world. I'm no longer going to be here to take care of mom. And so I am going to pass on the responsibility of myself as the oldest son onto John. And he is now going to take care of my mom. And this would have been a huge blessing to Mary because he's already going through such horrible you know, torture of having to watch her son go through all this suffering and then have to think of what's now going to happen to me? How am I going to be taken care of? Don't you worry, Mom. John's going to take you. Right now, from this moment on, you're going to be in his home, and he's going to be the one who watches out for you. And Jesus is making sure his mom's needs are taken care of there as he's on the cross. Just an amazing demonstration of love by Jesus. David Guzik wrote this, Jesus consciously cared for his mother to the end, showing that even on the cross, his attention was directed towards others and not upon himself. If there was ever a moment when Jesus deserved to be self-focused, this was it. Yet, he remained other-centered to the end. What Jesus does here for his mother is just a wonderful example of his selfless love. The fact that his love was always directed and focused on others. It was never towards himself. It wasn't about him. If it was about him, he would have never gone to the cross. If it was about him and not suffering and not going through hardships, he would have never done what he did. It was his love for you, his love for me, that ultimately led to this place where he willingly sacrificed himself on the cross. Well, now John is going to reveal to us Jesus' final words before he dies. And these words are significant in many ways, but one of those ways is because they are another fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. John tells us that Jesus knew that all things were accomplished. Jesus knew everything. He knew the plan of God because he was God, and he was fulfilling this plan, but he knew there was one thing still to accomplish, one thing that was prophesied in the Old Testament that still needed to be accomplished in his life before he finally died on the cross. And his knowledge of this one thing reveals to, John points it out, he says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus says, I thirst. And notice what the soldiers give to Jesus when he says, I thirst. We're told, now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Now, the Greek word here translated sour wine is a Greek word for vinegar. Uh, some of your translations actually translate this vinegar. And so when Jesus says, I thirst, they give him this sour vinegar drink. Now, if you're thirsty, you want water. 
You know, this would have been a horrible thing. It was more just another aspect of torture from these soldiers. Oh, you're thirsty here. Have some vinegar. Yeah, that will really be nice for you. But the reason that John brings this up is not just to add to the torture that the soldiers bring upon Jesus, but to reveal this is another fulfillment of prophecy. That's why John says, when he says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Well, what scripture are you talking about, John? He's referring to Psalm 69 21, which says this, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. The psalm is prophesying that the soldiers would give the Messiah, the Son of God, at his moment of death, vinegar to drink when he was thirsty. And how random would that be to write that, you know, hundreds of years before it ever happened. But God knew the specific details of what would transpire at the crucifixion and hundreds of years before prophesied about the fact that Jesus, when he thirsted, would be given this vinegar to drink. Well, after Jesus says, I thirst, he says his very final words before he dies. And they're very important words. He says, it is finished. Now, this Greek word translated, it is finished, is a cry of someone who is a victor. It means completely accomplished, paid in full. Henry Morris wrote this, Jesus died with the cry of a victor on his lips. This is not the moan of the defeated nor the sigh of patient resignation. It's the triumphant recognition that he has now fully accomplished the work that he came to do. When Jesus says, it is finished, it's such a powerful statement. All that Jesus came to do was finished. It was paid in full. It was accomplished. The promises and the prophecies have all been fulfilled. They are finished. The sacrifices and the ceremonies of the priesthood were finished. Jesus' perfect, sinless obedience was now finished. The satisfaction of God's justice as he pours out his wrath upon Jesus instead of having to do it upon us is finished. The power of Satan, sin, and death was finished. You know, a single statement can change everything. Not guilty in a court of law changes everything. Fair in a baseball game changes everything. When a woman says yes to a marriage proposal, that changes everything everything. Goodbye could change everything. But there's never been a single statement said that has impacted history more than Jesus' statement, it is finished. Let those words bring you comfort. Jesus' work has been accomplished for you and for me. Now after Jesus says it is finished, John tells us that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Once again, John reminds us, no one took his life from him. He willingly gave it up for you and me because of his deep love for us. Well, now John's going to tell us something that happened right after Jesus died to prove that he actually died and also that it fulfills more prophecy concerning Jesus' death. Verse 31, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs may be broken and that they might be taken away. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And another scripture saying that they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Now remember, this is a very special time, preparation day. Well, what does that mean? That's Remember, we're celebrating the Passover. This is a night where they prepare the sacrifice of the lamb. So it's the preparation day. It's the most important part of this Passover feast. But it's also a high Sabbath day. And both those things together make the religious leaders not want the eyesore of three men hanging on a cross. That They don't want that. Typically, the Romans love to leave people up there for a while so that the deterrent of crime would last. But they don't want that, and so they come to Pilate, and they ask Pilate to break the legs of these three men 
on the cross and then take them off the cross. You see, it would usually take about several days for someone to die who was crucified. That's why it was such a horrible, agonizing death. And the way that you would ultimately die is of suffocation. Because how you would survive is that you would have to pull up with your arms and push up with your legs to take a breath. Because you're sagging down and you're going to have to push up to breathe. And you do this over and over again. And the reason that's so horrible is you've got nails in your hands and nails in your feet, and you're pulling and pushing on them, and your body won't just let itself die. And so for days, you're doing this in agonizing pain, and then ultimately, the strength of your arms and legs give out, and you suffocate. Well, what they're asking Pilate to do is just break their legs. Why? Well, then they can't push up anymore, which means they can't breathe, and this in a few minutes, they'll, they'll suffocate to death. And then you can take them off the cross, and then we won't have them up there during our Passover festival. Well, Pilate agrees to do this, uh, and he sends his you know, executioners out to take care of this, and they come, and they break the legs of the first thief, and they go and they break the legs of the next one. And then when they get to Jesus, they recognize he's already dead. Now, these are guys that do this for a living. I mean, they're executioners. They know when someone's alive or dead. So they don't break Jesus' legs, but instead, one of the soldiers takes a spear and pierces Jesus' side, and we're told that blood and water comes out. Now, notice that John tells us this in verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John's saying, hey, I'm writing this as an eyewitness testimony. I was there at the cross when this happened. I watched these other two men and their legs being broken. I watched as a soldier pierced Jesus' side. I saw all this. So I am an eyewitness testimony. I want you to know my testimony is true. What I'm declaring here is true. And the reason this would be so important, because he said, it's true so that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is God. Well, why would this testimony about what John saw cause people to believe that Jesus is God? Once again, because it fulfilled prophecy. And that's why John specifically says this, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And another scripture says, they shall look upon him in whom they have pierced. John is quoting Psalm 34, 20. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Zechariah 12, 10. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Two prophecies clearly speaking about the Messiah and what would happen. One is he isn't going to have any bones broken, and the other is they're going to pierce him. Well, both of those things happen with Jesus and his crucifixion. As we see two more prophecies that reveal Jesus truly is God. So John highlights nine prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. And the main purpose of sharing these fulfilled prophecies is because it proves that Jesus is God. And that should cause us to believe that Jesus is God. But Paul, uh, John wants us to go one more step, that you would take that knowledge and place your trust in Jesus. Believe in Him as your Savior. Ask for His forgiveness because He paid for your sin on the cross. And the fact that God planned this work on the cross and completely fulfilled that work is the greatest demonstration of love there is and the greatest proof that God loves you. If you ever ask that question, you know, does God love me? All you got to do is look to the cross and you can be confident that he does. Jerry Bridges wrote this, if we want proof of God's love for us, then we must look first at the cross where God's offered up His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Calvary is the one objective, absolute, irrefutable proof of God's love for us. So what John has shared with us about the crucifixion of Jesus and the prophecies connected with it, uh, it should challenge us. Challenge us with the reality that Jesus is God, and there's overwhelming evidence to prove that, but it should also encourage us. Encourage us with the reality that He loves you and me so deeply, that He was willing to take your place and my place on the cross. He was willing to take your sin and my sin. He was willing to take the wrath and judgment of God that we deserve so that we could be forgiven of our sin, so that we could have a relationship with Him, this is the greatest demonstration of love there is. Let it encourage you. If you're here this morning, maybe you're watching online, 
You've never put your trust in Jesus. You've never really been confident or convinced that he is God, that he died for you, that he is the way to salvation. My hope is as you look at this, you see there's evidence for Jesus being who he claimed to be. And that he loves you enough that he gave his life for you, that he died on the cross for your sins. And the Bible tells us that if you will just put your trust in him and who he is, that he is God, that he died on the cross for you, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, if you will ask for him to forgive you of your sins, then he will do that. He will save you, and you can have a relationship with him. And the day that you die, you can spend eternity with him in heaven. If that's something that you have never done, and you want to do that today, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now. We're going to take a time just to close in prayer. And if you want to make a choice to accept Jesus as your Savior, let's do that today. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. Your word tells us, for you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So we look to the cross as we look to your sacrifice, as we look to the love that it demonstrates, Lord, for those of us who have already made a choice to accept you, we just want to say thank you. We don't deserve it, Lord, but you were so amazing. that The God of the universe loves us so much that he became one of us and took our place, paid the price that we could never pay so that we could be forgiven and set free from our sin. If you're here today and you've never made a choice, put your trust in Jesus, to ask for forgiveness of your sin, and you want to do that today, as everyone's eyes are closed, we're in this time of prayer, if you want to make that decision today, I'd just like to pray for you. I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and just raise your hand. You want to make a decision for Jesus. You want to know that when you die, that you're going to be able to go to heaven because your sins have been dealt with. If you've never done that, you want to do that today. Just go ahead and raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Lord, your love is so deep. It's really incomprehensible to us why you would love us so much. God, we are so grateful. And I pray the truth that is backed by so much evidence of who you are and what you've done would not only just be a blessing to us, but it would be something that we would take, the message of the cross, the message of your love, the message of the gospel, and the evidence to support it, that we would just share that. Lord, share that with family and friends and coworkers and neighbors and just people in this world who do not know that truth, who have not been convinced by who you are and what you've done. Lord, give us that boldness. Give us clarity in our words, wisdom in what to say. Lord, and help us just to be that light for you to reach people that don't know you. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask that you would just help us grow to become more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and have the worship team come on up. And men, if you're planning on coming to the men's retreat and you haven't signed up, please do that today. Uh, it's also $70 to come, so you can pay online. Uh, you can pay through the tithe box either way. Uh, and uh, we'd love to have you join us. So this is... Stand together and uh, worship the Lord.